Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a series of reflections that have had us talking about a great number of things. And I have to tell you that I have very much been looking forward to engaging with you on what we are going to be talking about this evening, in particular, chapter 11. And chapter 11 verses 17 to what? 17 to at least 26, if not more. We are going to be able to engage Paul's recount of uh, the institution of the Eucharist, the Last Supper. So this is going to have us talking about some exciting subject matter. And before we get into that and read those verses, I do just want to continue to welcome all of you tuning in by way of podcast in the countries of Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Chile, France, Portugal, Spain, Croatia, Poland, uh, China, Japan, India, South Africa, all of you out there, I very much welcome you. And I am honored that you are taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here in the friendly confines of Chico, California, Northern California, where we do our best to, to talk about all of those topics that are burning on our heart. This program for the past three years, and really we could even say 10 years, but over the past three years we have gone to The Daily Show, has made the point to respond to your questions. And uh, for this reason, we have talked about so many different things. I mean, here we are in 1 Corinthians 11 talking about really what lies at the heart of our Christian and Catholic faith, the Eucharist. So with that, let us jump into uh, these verses. And again, I'm going to be reading here Well, we'll go ahead and start with verses 17 to 22. Chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you meet together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Wow, those are some strong verses. What's going on here? Well, how about this? For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, what's interesting here is, ultimately, what Paul is getting at is where there will be light, there will be darkness, and the light will shine brighter the greater the darkness, right? And ultimately, that light that shines bright will be known for what it is, a great light, especially within these Corinthian communities. So there are these factions, there are are these divisions, and 
Divisions lead to what? Chaos and, and disorder. But those who are the light of Christ, what? Take this uh, disorder, take this chaos, take these crises, if you will, and ultimately use those to discern the deeper meaning of what is going on. Incidentally, my friends, the word crisis in the Greek, krino, you want to know what that word means? Well, to discern, we have talked about discernment a lot. Isn't it interesting that the very Greek word that we get the word crisis is the same Greek word for discernment? I find that fascinating because when you really get underneath what a crisis is all about, should it not lead us to a deeper discernment? Now, there could be crises that come up because of our own undoing, and certainly this is what's going on in the Church of Corinth, but also there can be crises going on outside of our control. Maybe it's um, a death in the family. A death in the family certainly is a crisis for us. Maybe not so much for the person who has passed away if he's been living in in Christian beatitude because he's sharing in the beatific vision right now, right? But certainly for us, and, and especially those who might be close to a loved one who passes away, yeah, this can be a crisis. And what should that crisis lead to? Well, what should death lead to? But a deeper discernment of who you are and who God is calling you to be, right? Doesn't death have a way of encouraging you to think more critically about your own life? what you do versus what you don't do, what you should do versus what you shouldn't do, okay? Crisis has a way of drawing out, if you will, by the grace of God, what God is calling us to. And we can only understand and appreciate that if we enter into discernment. So there's something very interesting going on when we really get to the heart of what a crisis is all about. Now again, Paul's words to the church of Corinth here are about crises among the Christian community. Those Corinthians who were genuine should be discerning the deeper meaning of these crises. Essentially, how God might be calling them to become a stronger Christian. And could we not fast forward this 2,000 years later, where there might be factions, divisions that lead to chaos and disorder within our own communities? Should Should we not allow this to be a point of discernment for us? All right, God, I'm looking around me and I see factions. I see divisions that are leading to chaos and disorder. Essentially, I'm I'm identifying a crisis. What do you want me to do? How are you calling me out to be a leader? How are you calling me out to be a peacemaker? How are you calling me out to be one who reconciles? So some interesting words there from Paul. What else is going on here in these verses? Well, I want to draw from George Montague. I've been drawing from him a little bit in our study. He's the author on uh, 1 Corinthians with the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, and and he makes this point. The celebration of the Eucharist is a communion with the body of Christ, not only in the host and the cup, but also in his members gathered at the particular assembly. Thus, we do not approach the table of the Lord without first exchanging the greeting of peace. And I love this image he offers up here. A Benedictine monastery has a stained glass window of two monks embracing each other with the inscription in Latin, do not give false peace. Let me say that again. Do not give false peace. 
Montague continues, it may be easy to give peace to the person next to us, but the kiss of peace means what, my friends? Reconciliation, or at least a willingness and a desire to be reconciled with everyone before we approach the altar. What do we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24? If you have your Bibles out, go there now. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. And if you're driving right now and you're listening to this radio program or podcast, okay, don't grab your Bible or don't try to pull it up on your phone. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Listen to this. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Isn't that a beautiful series of, of words and verses? Therefore, <laughs> if you bring your gift to the altar and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, my friends, you can't offer the gift that God desires if you are at odds with a brother or sister in Christ. If you are holding a grudge, our God is a God who doesn't hold grudges, okay? And if you question that, just look to the cross, look to the crucifix, look and listen to the words of our Lord on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The same people who crucified him are the ones that he forgives. Certainly we have been hurt. All of us have a wound somewhere in our heart because we have been hurt. Have we reconciled ourselves with our brothers and sisters in Christ? And more specifically, have we not allowed another person's weakness to dictate how we love or how we forgive? If we are going to enter into the agape of Christ, agape, that Greek for divine sacrificial love, then we must forgive as Christ forgives without condition. You see, what we have to remember, my friends, is that forgiveness in of itself is a divine act. I am often approached on this topic. And it is often said to me, Joe, I cannot forgive. It is just too hard. I get that. It is very hard. And to get to the core of it, it's humanly impossible, right? It is literally humanly impossible. Mark 2, 7 reminds us forgiveness in of itself is a divine act. So if you are holding a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ, what Paul wants us to do is to go to God, pray for that gift, pray for that grace, that indeed his redemptive love might invade our soul through and through and give us the strength to forgive our brother and sister in Christ. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. But in God's grace, what you will discover is that not only can you do it, but it will actually become a joy for you a joy to be able to overcome your own weakness. All right, this is a very important point, especially when you consider these verses and what Paul is after. So as it relates to what Montague was talking about, this sign of peace <laughs> means not only that we surrender our resentments and forgive, but also that we reach out to those on the fringes of the assembly the poor, the shabby, the smelly, the lonely. Well, maybe we belong to a big parish. In a big parish, it may not be easy to spot such persons unless we are, what, close to them. 
Do we follow our natural tendency to avoid them, to associate only with our kind? If we come to the Eucharist only to be fed, that is what we will do. But if we come also to feed, we will reach out to those who are hungry for love, and this may be done after we receive the gift of love, the Eucharist. You have heard me say on more than one occasion, maybe it's the one thing I say more than any other thing, that our baptismal vocation to live in God for other is really a vocation from, from spiritual birth to natural death, right? So let us think about this. If that is the case, to live in God for other, can we not insert this train of thought into the Eucharist and understand that it's about being fed so as to feed, to consume the Word of God literally so as to share the Word of God literally? This, my friends, lies at the heart of our faith. All right, how about those all-important verses, verses 23 to 26? If you went to Matthew chapter 5, you can now go back to verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the chalice after supper saying, this chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, what's going on here? Well, let me first go back to verse 23, because this is a very important verse. <laughs> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So there in that verse 23a, St. Paul is talking about tradition, right? I spent a great deal of time yesterday talking about the meaning of tradition coming from the Latin tradere, which literally means hand on or to hand on. We also read in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul encouraging the Thessalonians to stay steadfast to the just not written but oral transmission of truth. So what is written, of course, is sacred scripture, and what is spoken is sacred tradition. Now, I want to go back to Galatians chapter 1. I'll go ahead and start reading verse 15, because to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and what Paul said there, I think it's important to take a step back and look elsewhere into Paul's own journey of faith. So in verse 15, Galatians 1.15, and you don't need to go there now, go ahead and read it. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So, what's going on there? Well, these three years corresponds to what? But the many days that passed before Paul was forced to flee Damascus that we read about in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. Now, it's interesting. The Greek for to visit might be better translated as to interview. So, 
He spent 15 days with Peter doing what? Interviewing Peter, sitting down with him, talking with him about our Lord Jesus. Let us remember something else here. Who was St. Paul? Well, St. Paul was once Saul, the prized pupil of Rabbi Gamaliel, or in the Hebrew, Rabbi Gamaliel. We read about Rabbi Gamaliel in Acts 5. Rabbi Gamaliel was the rabbi of all rabbis. It was said of him when he died, the glory of the Torah died. So Rabbi Gamaliel was a very important rabbi, and his prized pupil was Saul, of course, who we know now as St. Paul. Why do you think St. Paul quotes the Old Testament 500 times? Because, my friends, he's so steeped in the Old Testament. And so, yeah, it is fitting that God would use him to help all of us better understand how Jesus not only fulfills the Old Testament, but at once transforms it and more specifically, transforms it in his blood. All right, so what about the rest of these verses? That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, eucharisteros in the Greek, right, where we get the word eucharist, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the chalice after supper saying, this chalice is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it and remembrance of me. Now, I want to turn our attention to Scott Hahn's work, Consuming the Word. This is a book that carefully examines the phrase we just read, New Covenant or New Testament. You know, the phrase New Testament appears six times in the documents that were eventually brought together as what? The biblical New Testament, right? <laughs> now, six times might not seem like a lot, but they were very significant. And I think here the important question to be asked and one that Scott Hahn posits is, what did the first Christians mean by this term? And we could add, add another question. What did Jesus mean the one time he used it? Because we have to remember, there was no book by that name during the time of Jesus, right? So both Jesus and his early followers must have meant something else. But the question that prevails is, what? So the word we render as testament in the Greek is diatheke. In the early Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures called the Septuagint, diatheke is used as the equivalent of the Hebrew word berith. Now, both diatheke and berith may be rendered more accurately in English as covenant rather than as testament. The term new covenant that we just read of in 1 Corinthians 11.25 actually first appears in the oracles of the books Christians later came to know as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And it appears only once, and if you are a faithful listener, you know what that passage is. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the prophet Jeremiah here speaks of a berith, huh? a new covenant. Consequently, Jeremiah's oracle is the obvious precedent for the several appearances of the term in the Gospels and Epistles. Now, how then do we explain the preponderance of the English term New Testament rather than New Covenant? Well, this is a point Scott Hahn makes, and I think this is invaluable. The distinction appears only in Western translations, which have been influenced by the Old Latin and the Vulgate. Latin speakers found nothing exact and settled on the Latin word testamentum, 
a word often associated with bequests, my last will and testament. So there you see the word evolve from covenant, the bereath and diatheke, to testament under the umbrella of this testamentum, huh? In all of our Lord's sayings, we find just one instance when he used the phrase we translate as New Testament. And he used it to describe neither a will nor a book, huh? but rather a sacramental bond. And my dear friends, it is the verse we just read. St. Paul provides the earliest historical record of the event, perhaps 20 years after the fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what Jesus is doing and commanding those present to do in remembrance of him is clearly very important. His words convey the deepest solemnity, and he speaks them in the gravest context, huh? That context of the ritual sacrificial meal of the Passover. So our Lord's words there in the upper room, as he was instituting the Eucharist, evokes the oracle of Jeremiah, does it not? But also, we could say, the account of Moses' ratification at Sinai of Israel's covenant with God. There, Moses extended the covenant to the people by ritually sprinkling them with the blood of sacrificial animals. What What do we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8? Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. Huh? So our Lord's actions, like Moses, inaugurated a covenant and did so with the offering of a blood sacrifice shared with those in the covenant family. Thus, in our Lord's only use of the term, we find that New Testament refers not to a text per se, but to a rite. And of course, rite, R-I-T-E, speaks of what but liturgy. So, St. Paul is very intentional in what he is doing here. What else is that this is really the only time that St. Paul directly quotes Christ himself. Isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, how important is that? Well, quintessential, (laughs) really. And how about verse 26? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I think here we ought to ask the question, why would Paul say that? Well, what were we just talking about? That the Eucharist is the New Testament, that the Eucharist is the good news, that the Eucharist is the gospel. So Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For as often as you live in the Eucharist, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, you cannot disconnect the Eucharist from the gospel. You cannot disconnect the Eucharist from the New Testament. You cannot disconnect the Eucharist from our proclamation. This is what Paul wants us to see. What did Tertullian once say? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Also translated in the Latin The blood of the martyrs is effective Christian seed. My dear friends, the Christian church grew in its earliest stages because the apostles were proclaiming the good news, yes, but they were following our Lord's command, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus did not say, write this. He said, do this. In time, they started to write, 
what Jesus did, but by celebrating the Eucharist were they following his first command, do this in remembrance of me. And by following his command, they were proclaiming his good news. So the Christian church was growing because they were baptizing and teaching as Christ instructed, but also there are many Christians who being persecuted were not willing to forsake Christ. And people were watching this. People who were not Christians saw this and it moved them to repent. It moved them to convert. And so it is right that Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church or the blood of the martyrs is effective Christian seed. This is why, my friends, 2,000 years later, when we unite our suffering to the suffering of Christ, when we spill blood and unite it with the blood of Christ, when our blood spills into the cup of Christ, we proclaim the Lord's death in the most profound way. Remember that the word martyr comes from the Greek martyria, which translates also as witness. We witness to Jesus Christ when we lay our life down for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift of just being able to reflect into the richness and beauty of your word as we do from one day to the next. And, and we also offer up a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of thanksgiving for all that you have done for us in our lives. All is blessing, all is grace. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.